All right, this is the Yield Coach Show, Season 1, Episode 5. All right, as always, every episode, we're bringing you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders, inspirational guests, guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you can gain lessons, advantages, and accelerate your own success. I'm your host, Ian Brown. Today, I am joined by Chris Gooden. Chris is a friend of mine and a local developer here in Northeast Florida. He is the president of Coastland Group. He graduated from the University of North Florida in Wilmington with a concentration in finance and operations management. Chris worked at KB Homes in land acquisition and development for five and a half years. In October 2017, Chris left KB Home and started Coastland Group, a development and consulting firm specializing in subdivisions and single-family residential communities. Chris has personally developed over 400 home lots and consulted to develop just under 2,000 home lots. Chris dabbles in his own commercial development and investment, and his first project as an investor was a quadruplex in Neptune Beach, Florida. With that, Chris, thank you for being on the show and welcome. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate you having me. We are excited to have Chris. Chris does have a unique... Um, a unique background and I think what's even more unique about Chris is I don't know that we're going to be able to get a lot of subdivision developers it's a unique area in investment um, you know I've done apartment work hotel work flip some land here and there but entitling and taking down land and building communities you know is its own animal so I'm excited to jump into Chris's story um, Chris we don't go back to like your date of birth but tell us a little bit about yourself you know your family um, and, and we'll jump into your professional background thereafter. Okay, it's so uh, lived in uh, North Carolina, went to university, graduated, and uh, my family is originally from England. Uh, all my family is from England. I was fortunate enough to come over here to the States. A uh, lot of respect to my father who managed to uh, get us over here uh, with a visa and uh, been here since. Ooh, uh, since like fifth grade, um, but graduated university, came down Jacksonville for a job. I had two kind of decisions, North Carolina for banking or Jacksonville, Florida, and I thought, why not continue to live at the beach? Good move. Thought block and a half off the beach, you know, can't get better than that, where I, where I was in North Carolina as well, and here I am. Now, uh, we were talking a little bit before we hit record, um, there's a lot of uh, analytical members of your family. Can you rattle off a little bit of the of the specialties or acumen of your family? Yes, yeah, so uh, chemist, uh, engineer, architect, uh, attorney. Um, that's pretty much my whole background. So very analytical. Uh, my grandfather was one of the head uh, engineers of Otis Elevators. Oh. So he actually designed the uh, elevators for the Twin Towers, Bank of New York. Um, to name a couple of them, so wow. very, very analytical. You know, um, and with previous guests, I've had just certain words that come to mind. You know, as they come on, and with Chris, detail and precision. You know, those are a couple words that just stay top of mind. You know, I've, I've had other words for different guests, but you know, you can tell from Chris's pedigree and his background, and the more you get to know him on this show, the man is precise and detailed, and uh, 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say you probably make fewer errors than most of us do. <laughs> um, so we, we figured out where you're from. We know where that, that awesome accent came from now, right, right out of England, right? Yep. So um, even coming in at fifth grade, there's no shake in it, right? Yeah. Uh, something like that. I think uh, going back every year, uh, kept it, but my brother lost his. So oh, my tra brother he's a traitor. Something like that, right? <laughs> oh. All right, now, you know, we'll get to your entrepreneurial story, but um, anybody in your, in your family um, have their own business, uh, go out on an entrepreneurial leap? Uh, my father in the last 10 years has, mm -hmm. um, but I think he's been very kind of entrepreneurial always, being a chemist, has lots of patents. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting. You know, I, I find it I find it fascinating those that come from a background where everybody leaps and goes for it, and those that there's no context for it, but they still manage to to rise up and step out on their own. So that's interesting. Um, I'm going to jump into a little bit more about kind of what you're up to these days. Um, you know, I know Chris professionally here in Northeast Florida. He's a very reputable um, subdivision developer, and uh, but I'd like you to, if you will. Kind of go back through, um, you know, your time at KB, kind of what you learned and, and fast forward us into, um, you know, what you're doing now and, and what it looks like to do a subdivision deal. I think, I think most of the audience um, wouldn't even know. We're not talking about, you know, just doing one little lot at a time. Uh, Chris is involved in entire communities, converting raw acreage into actual subdivisions. So, uh, yeah, if you could just, if you could just kind of walk us through uh, your professional journey to date. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I started at KB 2012. Um, so the market is kind of recovering, still not great. You've got distressed property all over. You've got land that's fully developed that's sitting there. You've got partially developed and you've got a whole lot of stuff that's entitled and ready to start building. And entitlement meaning zoning, uh, fully zoned and ready for that to start engineering. And so I kind of got a cool area of getting to see the full gamut. So we did everything from buying developed lots to buying some partially developed lots and trying to figure out what is developed, what's already done, what do you need to do to it. And just kind of as that market evolved and got stronger, that supply dwindled. And so it got into really more land creation and community creation. And so that we got into that having to um, take entitled land and start the engineering process. You may have had all the due diligence done though. Um, so it was kind of unique and it was nice because I got to experience all aspects of it. Uh, we were a small team. I think when I came on, there were three of us. Um, I think today the team's like nine or 10. Um, All in the acquisitions or? Uh, in acquisitions and development, okay. about 10 people in Jacksonville. So there were three of us in acquisition and development when I came on. And so you kind of got to do everything, you know, which is a nice aspect that you mm -hmm. get to learn, put your foot in each different spot, and it was to just figure out how to get it done. Now, um, 2012 getting started. So were you in your 20s? Yep. Right yeah. out of college. Right out of college. It's a great job out of college. So uh, we mentioned this in other episodes, but, you know, the idea that you want to work to learn, not necessarily work to earn. And, um, of course, it's nice to pull a check, but Chris was in a unique position to work for a, 
is KB national or regional? National. National. Yeah. For a national home builder um, in a broad scope, you know, sometimes you're not so fortunate out of undergrad, you may get a job where, you know, if you look at it as a loaf of bread, you're only working on like, you know, the butt and a couple of slices. Chris got to kind of handle the whole loaf, which is really unique. And I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't think he'd be able to do all that he's doing now without having been exposed to the whole comprehensive process. So another thing that came to mind when you were speaking about that 2012 coming into KB Homes as an acquisitions um, officer, what was the housing supply like in 2012? Now we're filming this in Northeast Florida. We have a lot of positive immigration right now, and we might talk about that later from the home building context, but were we overbuilt, underbuilt? I mean, a lot of people had just lost their homes between two, late 2008 and in those subsequent years. What, what was it like in 2012? So, you know, market supply is always driven by what's the sales pace, right? So it's really quick and easy to say, okay, there's 300 homes or 500 homes, you know, or lots or 5,000 lots available. But if your sales pace is only I don't know, 100 a month, then you've got a large supply of lots. And I think it, it started to open up more and more as we, uh, from 12, 13, 14, as, as people wanted to get back into the swing of owning a house again. Um, but it was, you know, 2012, there were, plen there were plenty of lots. The biggest thing- Were they already, and I mean to cut you off, Chris, were they already, I assume they're already entitled, were they also horizontally built, like with the infrastructure already in place for a lot of them? So there was all, there was, yes. All the above, yeah. really? There was all the above. There was entitlements, there was tons, there was a good number of land with entitlements. And then there was a good amount of land that was partially horizontally developed. And then there was some land that was fully developed. Um, it all became a math equation, right? So the mm -hmm. stuff that was already developed, the question was, has that owner written it down? Have they take, are they willing to take a loss on the investment? Mm. Has the bank taken it over and what are they willing to sell it for? And so then it just, that was really yeah. the equation was, you know, these home builders, a lot of them came in and they may have had 10,000 lots on the books and they said, okay, we're going to slash the price. We're going to take a big write off and suddenly our lots are half what we actually paid. Mm. And, so, and I guess you have to kind of figure out, let's say you're looking at a site, it's entitled, it has all the infrastructure. So we're talking about water, sewer. They might've already pulled electric. You could already have pads. You know, you could have like a pad ready community. And I guess you would need to sit there and decide what's that worth today? How much are we going to give this owner? And, um, and that owner, like you said, you heard him talking about a write-off um, has, let's say it's bank owned, has the bank already written down that maybe already absorbed the loss. Um, I'm not going to railroad Chris's story. I remember, um, one of the better deals I did in 2014, um, it was a, a hotel. It was a, it was a $12 million build with like a $9 million loan. And it, it was built in 09, which is like the worst year to open a hotel. But it was, you know, approved in 07 and they were in the middle of construction. A lot of times you just have to finish these projects. So build through them. Got to build, <laughs> build through them. And it had a fully cleared and entitled lot next to the hotel of the same size. And it was either going to be a second hotel or storage, like an interior corridor, cube smart self storage. And I came in and arranged a sale at $5 million for a $12 million project that had roughly a $9 million loan. And the bank just threw in that land fully entitled with the extra piece. 
that was like a last minute negotiation. Just that land now is probably a million, a million five, 1.5. Yeah. So jumping back into Chris's story, you know, you're looking at land in all these different stages. Let's, we'll pick it up from there. Yeah, it was very similar. I mean, we were looking at lots, you know, $25,000, a lot. Today, you can't even do the horizontal development for that amount of money. Mm. So we were buying things at less than you could reproduce. And as the market recovered, that actually became an issue at stages of what is the, the actual, how can you replicate and create a new lot? You, if you wanted another phase to a subdivision, say there's a 400 unit subdivision and you've bought 100 or 200 developed lots, you're having to push that price up slowly because you realize your next phase that you're going to have to develop has to get to this price. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to be losing money. You can't, you can't build it. Yeah, you wouldn't even bother to do phase two or three or whatever it's going to be. Interesting. Interesting. So like just, and, and we'll go, I want to kind of stick on your timeline, yeah. but just as a glimpse to compare that to like today, then you were buying, you know, these are lots that you can go ahead and put a home on. These, these lots are, are ready, built, uh, you know, shovel ready. What would a, uh, what would a shovel, shovel ready site today, typically a run of the mill average site here in Northeast Florida cost. And then what would just like the raw land roughly cost per, so, per lot? I'll say in the last 12 months, the cost to develop has fluctuated incredible amount, just like, horror, just like vertical construction. But a year ago, it was about 30,000 30, a unit, you would say, for a, call it a 150-unit subdivision, about 30,000 a unit, maybe 40 today. Mm -hmm. um, but that's for one lot in a subdivision. You've got your entry monumentation, not really an amenity, uh, fencing around the community, um, all the infrastructure in, the pad built, about 30. Okay. And if you were to go backwards from there, what might, what might you know, your group be looking for, for an individual lot value, raw land? Um, so then that's just the horizontal cost of raw land. I mean, it's a function of where you are. Yeah. You talk about North Jacksonville, you're 20-ish today, 20 mm -hmm. to 25,000 a unit, meaning one lot. You get down into, you know, for the St. John's County or the south side of Jacksonville, you're 70,000, 60,000 a lot. Mm. So the land function's very much determined on the location. Mm -hmm. But the, the big thing that most people don't realize is that lot to build in the south side in a, in a dense area of town or that lot to build in a more rural area, it's pretty much the exact same cost. Oh. Your, your dirt's the same, your pipe's the same, everything's pretty much the same. Is there still, I'm going way back in my career to some of the early appraisal days. We did some subdivision appraisal. My brother Adam did more of it than I did. I did more of the hotels and apartments. Um, but is there still, is, is the lot value still tied to some ratios, some common rule of thumb ratios to the end sales price. You know, if, if you're going to sell homes that are $300,000, then a lot might be X. Is there yeah. still a ratio that you see in your industry? It's about 20 to mm -hmm. 25% okay. is kind of that ratio. So, you know, when you look at, you know, a sales price, generally 20, 25% it's your land. Okay. I think that's good for the audience to hear too, as you're, and maybe you're looking at, land that Chris would buy from you or, or land that you might want to develop on your own, you know, to be thinking like, okay, 
if if this if this lot is 25% of the overall home value, does that home value even make sense for this part of town? And you could be listening to this in a different state wherever you are and, you know, it might it might help you come through your analytics. Ratios and rules of thumbs can be very helpful. So, I definitely appreciate you sharing that. So, it's 2012, you're taking down communities that are raw land entitled, maybe it's extra phases. Uh, it's an exciting time because there's, you know, there's all these different options. I would imagine, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I know a lot of home builders just, they, they went bankrupt in the downturn and they, and they weren't, they weren't back in swing in 2012 and 13. A lot of them. I, I personally know a couple in Northeast Florida that never recovered. So, um, let's jump right back in there. It's 2012, it's 2013. You're, you're putting together new communities. So, you know, as the, as the market's picking up, we're having to search for new opportunities that people are holding on to those and not wanting to reduce the price. You know, you get more into that land creation or community creation. And so you start looking at, well, what's the next lowest low-hanging fruit? And it's the stuff that's already zoned and maybe it was partially engineered. Um, they've got some of the due diligence done and you can pick up and finish the project. And so um, that was kind of that next tier that you run into with really picking it up and doing most of the due diligence yourself. Um, and on, a, on the land side, you know, it, it's kind of like doing an apartment. There's always eight or 10 things you want to do. They're just a little bit different. Um, it's just raw looking at the dirt versus looking at the building. Um, there's a process always that you create, but um, that was really that next tier was, was going into that, doing the due diligence, doing the engineering, the permitting, the budgeting. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the further we got involved into that side of it, you learn that so much of the value is created on the development side that suddenly you're looking at, well, what's that lot sell for? What's this lot sell for? When it's developed, it, it's easy because it's apples to apples. When you're looking at raw land, there's so much that can go into it. Did this site suddenly cost you $40,000 a unit to develop? Or did it cost you $20,000 a unit to develop? Things such as like, is your dirt good? Um, where are your wetlands? How many wetlands do you have? Do you have to impact your wetlands to develop it? And what's that fee to impact them? Um, do you have gopher tortoises that may pop up? Uh, what's the topography? I mean, you could have a site that's really low and as you start to engineer it, you realize you need to add four feet of fill to half the site. Suddenly your pond that you thought big enough that took up you know, 10, 15% of your whole community needs to be you know, 25, 30% of your community. And so you realize quite quickly that development becomes the key factor in understanding what that is and understanding what can you pay for land based on what it costs to develop. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where I kind of liked trying to funnel myself more, even though I'm more on the acquisition and enjoy finding the deal and looking at the deal. I always was always poking around at the development department and talking to them, trying to understand what's our costs, what's the cost to develop this, what are the things we have to overcome, you know, where are utilities, how are you tying into utilities? And those nuances can make and break any deal today. It's all on development. 
I think is fascinating. What you just ran through a lot, but you know, I did a small project, just an acre and a half, and we did you know architectural survey. We did soils with the tree and topo. We did the phase one for the for the um, environmental, and of course the title work. And okay, I did all those things, but it was only an acre and a half. Chris has to do all of these things. It may be 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 acres. And so the problem solving from a, you know, what'd you say, gopher tortoises, it could be a, you know, an Indian burial ground, there could be bald eagles nests, there could be, uh, we're in Florida, so wetlands are a common consideration. Um, we did mention you can impact some of those wetlands. Um, I actually want to pause there because that's an interesting point. Can you just briefly talk about how a subdivision may be able to actually go into some wetlands legally and, and what you have to do? Yeah, so, you know, you, there are two types of wetlands. There's what you call as an isolated wetland and then more of a jurisdictional. So if you've got a small pocket within your community that is just a wetland isolated in its own, you don't have to develop around it. Um, through a system, uh, you can go ahead and impact it. There are mitigation banks and you essentially pay into a mitigation bank uh, which is some wetlands somewhere else within a, lat within a certain district um, that basically you buy the credit from them and then you can impact yours. And so that wetland mitigation bank has those wetlands for perpetuity in conservation. So just to paraphrase, when you, let's say you fill over a, a spot wetland on your site, you're paying for some other wetland to never be impacted in a different location. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And contrast that with um, a jurisdictional wetland. So th that is a long subject. Okay. Recently the I don't Army, know much about it. So Army Corps uh, has recently relinquished their powers to a new agency. But the short of it is really if it's a large body of wetlands. So if you've got a large wetland spine running through your property and it continues off your property and it's starting from somewhere else, you can't just go and blow through it. Now, you can go through it to get access to your property. Hmm. They can't deny you access to your property. Would you do like a culvert or somewhere where the water could still flow through or can you really so block it? So you can it? throw a road straight through it and okay. do culverts or maybe it needs to be a, almost a bridge. a bridge. It just depends on how much water is flowing and what it is. Mm. Um, it's a very different process. It's a, it's, a, it's a similar process but it's a much longer time frame. But they're much more restrictive on what you can do. So if you hit a project with jurisdictional wetlands, that's going to be a, a major land planning consideration versus a spot wetland. You're probably just going to fill it and, and keep going. Exactly. Because we do see site plans, you know, some that I review, and, and they go around certain wetlands and not others, and it makes sense those would be the jurisdictional wetlands. Yep. Okay. I like it. So here we are. It's, you know, let's fast forward the clock just a little bit. Now we're in, you know, 2014, 15. I think you said you did five five, five and a half years at KB. How were things starting to change year over year and get a little more challenging? I presume you weren't buying land from banks at some point. I presume at some point the sites that were um, already horizontally built or pad ready, they probably started to go away. So just kind of describe how the evolution went. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, as, as they disappeared and you picked up the sites that were entitled and zoned, then those started to disappear and you started having to go through the full zoning process. You started having to change the land use. 
um, which is just a longer step. Um, and just doing what you can to find land. Um, so you started to really understand and appreciate what zoning, <clears throat> what zoning does to value and how to really interpret, can you get this rezoned and what could you get it rezoned to? So if you think about it, if you have <clears throat> 10 acres and it's zoned agricultural, you can probably only do one house to the acre mm. at most, maybe one house to every five acres. But if you could suddenly get that change to a zoning that is, uh, call it 60 foot wide lots, now you can probably get three and a half lots to the acre. So you've suddenly got 35 homes. And so you just start to realize that that drives so much value. Mm -hmm. And so that was a key area that I really enjoy and like and watch. And um, I know you're involved in it on the, mm -hmm. on the planning board and I'm involved in it in Neptune Beach. And I think that's one of the key value creations um, is that area of it. So kind of fast forwarding forward, you know, you start to having to find out, find these raw landowners. Uh, and that's a mix of brokers. That's a mix of sending letters. You know, I joke it, it's it's very much like um, wholesalers or people who who send letters to all these people. The difference is I don't have thirty thousand homes or two hundred thousand homes in Jacksonville. I want. I've got thirty parcels of land that I want. So it just becomes a very much of a targeted subject of these are the people I need to go see, this is how I need to get in touch with them, and making it a directed effort versus more of like a, a mm -hmm. spread. It's almost like when, um, let's say somebody gets into residential brokerage versus commercial brokerage. Most commercial brokers, most, are gonna specialize in an asset class. It doesn't do you a whole lot of good to bother all your friends on Facebook and Instagram, call your entire Rolodex. If your goal is to broker industrial real estate or sell hotels or apartments. It's kind of like that with you. You know, like, like you said, there might be 30 parcels, give or take, and you want those owners and you can, and you can be as creative and intentional and you can spend more time, more resources, more money to track them down. So that's a lot different than, than, you know, kind of the shotgun spray. Chris mentioned a wholesaler. I don't think we've talked about wholesalers yet, but, um, you know, to, to make it really quick, they put a property under contract and then they assign that contract to a different buyer. And for that assignment, they charge a fee. That's the shortest way to explain it. They flip the contract. Well, they would make sense to do a shotgun marketing campaign all over social, lots of snail mail, watch the probates, you know, there's a lot of the divorce cases, go, 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 go. Yeah, and, and then get letters, get in front of them. But you, you might actually, in Jacksonville MSA, we've got about 1.2 million, give or take. And um, so you, you may be putting out thousands of letters a month. It wouldn't do you much good to put out thousands of letters a month. Exactly. So I think I call it the rifle approach versus the shotgun approach. Yep. So, okay. Um, well, I'm liking all this. And, and what I'm hearing from Chris's story is in the beginning, the problem solving <clears throat> was like allocating contributory value to infrastructure that's already done and kind of playing that game. It looks like as the time marches on, those deals go away. Now 
you started to get stronger in your land use and your zoning and your entitlement work because now you're right back to like a true start from beginning subdivision deal. Exactly. And that's where you're starting. And I'll let you jump in there, but it seems like <clears throat> over the past few years, that's where you've been starting to get stronger and stronger. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what, that's what we do today. That's the, that's the game. It's purely on land creation, community creation, um, making something from just raw land. And so it is from the full entitlement stage, <clears throat> zoning, land use, uh, your basic, your due diligence, which, you know, you start off and you've got geotech, you've got topo survey boundaries, survey tree surveys, you've got your environmental, you've got your wetlands, you know, you've got to do all this. And I think one of when you're working for a national home builder, you can go ahead and release everyone all at once to go ahead. Let's go spend $80,000 at once and just go because you've got so many projects, you've got so much time and, and cash isn't as important. It's, we've got to get the, the community count and the lot count. So you can go ahead and start on everything at once, spending eighty, hundred thousand dollars um, just depending on the size of the project. And kind of forwarding ahead a little bit, but as you get into your own, doing your own thing, it's not quite the case. It's mm -hmm. how can you be slightly smarter or slightly more cautious about it? Not smarter, but just more cautious. Like staggering your due diligence <clears throat> costs. Staggering due no. diligence. How can you create a budget with less information um, and so as you get into that development side more and more, and as I said, that's really the key is just understanding what's it going to cost you to develop these sites. And, um, once you find the site, you know, understanding what you can sell it for is one thing, but understanding if it suddenly costs you three times more to develop it, um, people aren't going to pay you the price that you thought it's worth. Now, let's go into, if you will, you did your five and a half years at KB. I'm not going to try and do that math on the fly. I guess that would put you uh, around 2019. Am, am I wrong on that? And so, but let's go. You tell us when you were, when you went away from that W-2 job, because Chris was obviously doing very meaningful work, learning a lot about the entire process. But today, he is self-employed. Um, let's talk about that transition. I think a lot of people in the audience are like, you know, how would I jump from a W-2? And, and Chris's story is unique. Not everybody can do this, but I think it's it's quite relevant. Okay. Yeah, so um, definitely a unique kind of story. Um, I had always been one to, before, money's always important, but it was always wanting to learn. And so I think one of the reasons I wanted to switch out and, and do something was, you, I kind of, as we grew and got bigger, you get more siloed. Like you were saying with the loaf of bread, you get one slice of bread. And as we grew, that's more of what it became. And I didn't like it as much because I didn't get to learn as much. And to me, it was always about learning and trying to figure out the next thing. And if you're not learning, <clears throat> to me, if you're not learning, then you're not getting paid enough to, to, to sit, be a warm body in the seat. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been told to, it's much better to learn with someone else's money to begin with and with people a lot smarter than you around you. And so um, at one point in time, I just kind of got tired with it. And so I actually 
I approached our division president um, and uh, our regional president at the time was the one that originally interviewed me when I started. And I said, I'm bored, want to do something else. And they said, okay, where do you want to go? We'll transfer you to any of our um, locations in the southeast, which was uh, our regional presence area. If you want to go somewhere else, we can probably find you somewhere else too. And I just said, I want to stay in Jacksonville. I like what I do, but I want to get more experience. And I said, just flat out, they said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, you, um, I want to go out on my own. Will you be my first client? And it took some talking around and some conversations and how to structure it. And they said, yes. So kind of very unique. I attribute a lot of, you know, where I came from and how I got here to KB. And it was Todd Holder and Vince DePore. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I keep in touch with them. I show them pretty much every deal I have um, as a just a courtesy to them as to they were my first client. They got me on my feet. And I think relationships, we talk this business, real estate, I think almost everything is relationship business. So mm -hmm. um, I value that greatly as to they're the ones that really got me going, got me on my feet. That is amazing. You know, uh, and the relationships is true too. I mean, there's an expression that your net worth is your network. And, um, you know, for you to be able to leave KB, and I think there's a lesson there. Don't go burning all the ships, <laughs> you know, right there on the beach and just raising the middle finger, I'm out. You know, you might have been disillusioned. I think you used the word bored. Obviously, you were, you know, under under stimulated because you were doing the same thing for, you know, five and a half years and you developed a mastery and now it was time to go out on your own. But, you know, what Chris did, he went to his existing employer and that employer became his first meaningful client. It's still a meaningful client. So I actually don't know many people that have done that, but it's, it's, it was a risky it's really move. awesome. Yeah, it was yeah. a risky move going yeah. to him like, I'm done with y'all and, you know, mm -hmm. I would like to uh, do my own thing. But I thought, you know, why not? You know, they need lots. They needed land. They needed projects and I could do that for them and, and then some. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how just at, at its core, believing in yourself and knowing you can do it, it you can, it's like this rising wave and you just need it to crest and break. And, you know, there's been times when I was in organizations and I left and I think one of my big epiphanies happened while I was mowing the yard and I just took out the headphones and I was like, by God, I just need to be doing this on my own. And I had no malice or ill will to who I was working with before, but you probably came to the same point. You're like, you want autonomy of decision making. You want to just captain your own ship wherever it's going to go for better or for worse. Um, all right. So now you're on your own. Let's talk a little bit about, let's just say we're in time period now. Uh, you're president of the Coastland Group, your own company. Um, you're doing subdivisions. Uh, what's different now? I know the economy is a little different, but just give us a little, a little flavor as we fast forward time period now. Um. You know, I think now I've broken out onto not only doing my own development, but doing a large amount of consulting um, for REITs, um, for larger, much larger real estate groups. Um, I do some work with national home builders still, um, but doing that mix of one, doing my own development, but now being trusted enough to do development with other people's money as purely a consultant. Um, and so 
that's kind of a rewarding, nice thing to realize that people trust you that much, um, that they believe in you. And, uh, you know, as you do grow, you run into those two sides of how much do you want to put yourself out there from a capital perspective and how much risk do you want? And um, I, I kind of diversified myself by saying, OK, I'm going to get into more consulting as well and always try to balance the two of those. Maybe you lose some upside, but you create more stability in my eyes. And Chris is right. I mean, a big barometer of, uh, of your success within real estate as an investor, will a, will a stranger, you know, give you and trust you with their money in a project? And we're not talking about grandma. <laughs> I'm talking about mom and dad. And, and God bless those of you that have had success with, you know, mom and dad and granny's money. And sometimes that's, you know, the friends and family money is, is the best you can get. But um, to have a track record and acumen, uh, case studies, because, you know, Chris, like we talked about earlier, you know, He's, he's got 2,000 lots under his belt. So now he's got a real track record. He can borrow money from, from the outside. But he wouldn't have been able to do that if he never broke off on his own, build, it, build his own brand, and, uh, and furthered your own reputation. So I couldn't be happier for you. Thank That's you. Great. Yeah. Um, I'm going to kind of transition a little bit. So you've done a lot of entitlement, consulting, construction with other groups. Um, on a much, much smaller scale, any, uh, any personal little investment deals that you care to speak of, kind of what you learned, what went well, what didn't go so well? I mean, it's one thing to have giant budgets, huge corporate power and do KB subdivisions. Um, I know personally it feels almost more scary to buy a, <laughs> you know, a duplex somewhere with your own money. So I think the audience might be interested to hear about some of like your, your more local one-off investments. Yes, yeah, so my first true investment really was a quadplex uh, in Neptune Beach. Um, I was looking for a place to live. Uh, I wanted to be close to the beach. Um, you know, this was 2014, end of 2014 timeframe. I'd put on several offers and different properties, gone through due diligence. One of them didn't work out. Another one I didn't, I got outbeat on offers. And uh, this other this property came up, and I was actually heading to Key West on Friday. It came on the market Wednesday, and I'm like, oh, I just want I need to go see it. I didn't have time, <laughs> and I thought, you know, if it's on the market when it comes back, I'll go see it, put in an offer. So I did. It was on the market when I got back, came and saw it. This was a property owned, inherited. The owner had never been there. Um, terrible quality, terrible condition. Condition. Yeah. I mean, ace, there was a window AC, or whole thing was window AC unit. Window AC unit from the main living room into a porch that was with glass windows all around it, and then a separate <laughs> AC unit there. Well, I mean, that's the quality we're talking about. Um, so I did a construction to perm loan went through that hassle of getting one of those secured i put like five percent down and got about one hundred and forty thousand dollars in renovation money and went at it do you remember uh, now these numbers aren't going to be very relevant in in, <laughs> uh, in 2021 2022 but do you remember what that uh what that quad by the ocean set you back back in 2014 
I spent 350 grand. <laughs> I put about, I was a little over budget. I was about 150 into it. So I'm like 500 in. And you, um, and this is another funny thing that you can't do, at least in this market. It sounds like it was in MLS. Yep. You went on vacation and you came back and it was there. <laughs> there's, yep. another, there's another phenomenon we there don't get to There were a couple other offers. Okay. And I put, uh, my offer was, I think, $300 over ask is what I did in the end. And the other offers were below because it was 2014, 15. Uh -huh. And I'm like, you know what, it doesn't matter. It was a good deal. I saw it and I'm like, a couple hundred bucks over ask. There's no point messing around over a few thousand dollars because that's a rounding error at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, did it. I had some tenant issues. I had the whole quadplex had tenants in all of them. And I had less, I had a year to get the construction done with my loan. And they had more than, some of those tenants had more than that on their lease. Ooh. So uh, it was an interesting thing. I, one of them, um, I actually, one of them, I started going on the MLS. I started going on Craigslist. I started go, driving up and down the streets, trying to find somewhere for these people to live. And I was offering to pay these were cheap, so one bedroom was renting for five hundred dollars. Yeah, right I by the beach. Right <laughs> by the beach. The two bedroom was nine hundred dollars, and so I was finding places. They were more expensive, and I said I will pay the difference in rent for your period of your lease. Mm -hmm. So you know, maybe I was giving them a six hundred dollar check to move out, but I viewed that as the right thing to do. It got me going, and. I had some hiccups with one or two of the tenants, but managed to get those them out. Um, and then just started on the construction side of it. That's brilliant. You know, the, uh, and what Chris did is, you know, even as a Florida real estate attorney, I, I, I would not advocate eviction if you can avoid it. Um, and I can only speak to Florida because I, I don't do this anywhere else, but I think I, I think I did 15 to 20 residential evictions with my personal rental portfolio a couple of years ago. And even doing all of my own work, it's roughly $500 just in court costs and sheriff's costs. And it's every bit of a month. If Chris, and if, and if I had to engage, you know, outside counsel or another firm or attorney, it would run more like 800 to 1200, assuming they don't write like a really good answer and you have to go to court and actually do, then it just gets blown out. But, um, Chris offering somebody four, five, six, seven hundred bucks, being creative, covering the difference in leases. That's brilliant. Not to mention the speed. I mean, you've got this construction loan ticking. I'm actually kind of impressed you closed the loan or they let you close the loan on a 12 month construction with those tenants in place. Uh, I'm actually working on something <laughs> right now personally, and it was a condition of underwriting that I have like a notice to vacate okay. or confirmation that it's month to month before they would close the fix huh. and flip loan. But Good for you, and it, yeah. it sounds like it, it sounds like it all worked out. Um, so you did a 150 renovation. Um, did you end up owner occupying a unit, or did, I did. you keep? Okay. Yeah, I owner occupied one of the units. Um, you know, made it a little nicer, and yeah. Did the uh, and that's uh, the slang for that is a house hack. You know, buying a, a two to four unit property on a conventional residential loan. And, uh, you know, those are great. Chris just told you the whole thing, purchase and renovation, or, you know, 5% down on the whole project, which is unattainable. I mean, it's unattainable in an investment loan. So that's a great product. Now you live there by the ocean in the one of the four units. Did the other three pay for the entire property? Uh, yep. Yeah. A little bit of cash three, flow? 
The, yep, exactly. How so about that? You live for free, you got a few bucks each month. Um, I think I looked back the other day at my original underwriting of, you know, the two-bedroom, I think. And by the way, I went through some challenges buying it. I had an appraiser who didn't know the beach. They suddenly were comparing things. There's a main road that goes north-south, 3rd Street. And then there's three beach communities. They were comparing stuff way west of 3rd Street because they wouldn't get out of our little town of Neptune Beach. And I had to fight with the appraiser. I brought up examples. I had to go to the bank. I mean, I did a whole sp spreadsheet of this is why they are wrong. And they need to get someone that knows the area because they were about to cancel my contract. Or, or, I mean, I wasn't mm -hmm. going to be able to underwrite the project because they were saying my rent rates were too high. They were saying the, the value of the property isn't this once it's renovated. And, but I knew it wasn't and I just pushed and I gave them examples. I showed them other properties and got on a map and showed the underwriters and they believed me. And that's how I kind of went through it. But I think I had a two bedroom at 1400. And today, at two bedrooms, like twenty one, twenty two hundred. Mm -hmm. So it's a good little appreciation. Very nice. And um, without putting a formal valuation on it, I would assume it's probably worth over a million dollars now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. So you look at that. I mean, to be able to buy a property with five percent down, live for free, and 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 double, you know, in your appreciation. You know, um, the beaches are a high barrier to entry market, as you would say in appraisal. But you know, that phenomenon has happened really throughout. Florida. We're, we're in a good market, but it's just an example. Let, let's say there was no appreciation and Chris just lived in that one unit. The average American spends between 20 and like 49% of their monthly income on housing. I say 49% because that's kind of the cap on a lot of loan programs. So what if you're able to buy a two, three, four unit property like Chris and live for free or maybe cash flow? You've just given yourself a 20 to 49% raise it's just a no-brainer. People really underestimate the power of these house hacks. I strongly advocate them. Uh, strongly advocate them. The only thing I would say that I did learn, you know, you hear about people like their first deal didn't go great and they question whether or not they should do the next and they get into the next. I think the biggest problem that I had was it, luckily, it went so well and the valuation was so great that anything I looked at, 2000. 15, 16, 17, I kept comparing it back mm -hmm. and going, oh, well, this cap rate's not quite good enough. When in reality, I should have said, I'm doing it. Just go for it. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely missed out on a few deals for because of that exact reason going, you know, it's a little too expensive. And in today's market, we all look at it and you look back and you go, could have had three of these. Yep. And Chris makes a good point. For those of you that are trying to get into investment now, I will say, you know, it's you want to be a black belt or at least a brown belt right now if you're going to get into investment real estate. If you've never invested, the best advice they could probably give would be to partner. Partner with somebody with a strong track record. This is not the time and place to be doing your first investment deal alone. If you want to, go for it. I, I, I wish you the best. I'm pretty strong-headed too. I'd probably do one on my own right now if I was just starting. But the better advice would be find a partner with a good track record. Go shoulder to shoulder. Go to every meeting. Look at every bank application. Go to every site visit, every contractor conference call. And now's a great time to learn. Um, but to Chris's point, 
those of us that were doing really high yield deals from really from like 2009 all the way until 17, 18, even 19. I mean, there were a lot of really good deals to pick up. I mean, there were bank owned properties just in the marketplace. You could just jump on MLS or LoopNet or CoStar or Crexy and bank owned properties just a handful of years ago. I mean, but those days, let's be honest, those, those days are done. So if you want to get involved now, I still love a house hack, which is the two to four unit lock, because you're going to be able to borrow money probably at three, maybe a little bit under 3%, 30 year fixed, fully amortizing, even if it's just offsetting most of your mortgage. And a lot of people think, oh, living in a duplex, triplex, quadruplex, that's not fun. That's not sexy. My girlfriend, my wife, whatever, they're not going to like it. Well, I can tell you, I live in a... 3,300 square foot big corner house in Jacksonville. And we have a little 200 square foot studio. It's a corner, so they come in on their own. That little 200 square foot studio is is rented furnished on Airbnb. It pays 85% of my PITI, my principal interest taxes and insurance on that 3,300 square foot house. So trust me, I mean, we're over there living, you know, <laughs> we're living like Biggie Smalls for like $1,000 a month. So um, I'm not trying to be braggadocious. I just love the house hack because then for those of you that are watching that are like having a hard time saving money for investment well whether you own your home or your rent and looking to buy if you own your home and it's not multi-unit i'd say put it on the market and buy a multi-unit i'm being totally honest and if you rent and you're looking to buy stop looking at just single family start looking at something with a rental maybe a garage apartment a cottage something like that so i'm going to pause yeah. right there because it's i could go on and on about the house hacking benefits but you're gonna be, it gives you like a 20 to 49% raise on your, on your monthly. Um, all right, Chris, I love that. Are there any other personal deals that you, you know, that you care to dive into or takeaways or lessons learned? I do like the lesson learned that, man, I did so well on my first personal investment deal. I didn't do more. Boom, I wish I would have. So I think that's yeah. one lesson that was probably a takeaway. Yeah, I mean, on the personal side, I think that's probably one of the biggest is, uh, you know, don't hold yourself to the first deal and and be open mm -hmm. and if it's close probably close enough to do it yeah you know chris was doing something with that it was 2014 you bought the quad yeah right? you paid 300 over at a time and, and you knew who cares yeah. it's 300 over now look what people have to do they have to pay you might have to pay 300,000 <laughs> now you're buying 300,000 over um that might be a little extreme but 30,000 over um Chris had the foresight back in 2014 to know it's a rounding error. It's going to be fine. Um, all right. I do kind of want to bring it home for the guests and we're going to move into that kind of last segment here of the show. Um, who has been your, your greatest influence? It could be a book, a person, it could be a podcast, but what, what has kind of been in your head to influence you on your journey to date that you would want to give a tip of the hat to? That's a tough question. I know, and I want to put words in your mouth. I know that we talked before the show, it sounds like you had some really good mentorship coming out of UNF into KB, and, and, and maybe it was just the KB organization, maybe it was someone you met along the way within or outside the organization, but I know for most of us, for me, I had an individual, Eric Hector, an MAI appraiser that poured three years of his life into training me as a commercial appraiser. I don't currently write reports, but I know I wouldn't be sitting here with a mic and a camera um, if Eric didn't pour three years into me, I just wouldn't have the mindset. So, um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, yeah. but if somebody, you know, if something kind of triggered you to where you're like, you know, it would have been hard to get here without that person. Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, my first 
you know, kind of boss and uh, NKB, Mass and Craps, was uh, definitely a guy that taught me a whole lot of stuff. Um, super smart guy. Um, you know, I definitely owe a lot of what my base knowledge is to him. Um, at university, I did an internship with a small group, uh, Silverfield Development. They, uh, incredibly smart guys, um, thousands and thousands of low-income housing uh, apartments uh, throughout the Northeast. Um, they were great. Um, and then I, I had a friend who kind of coming, as I was moving to go out onto my own, he was an attorney similar to you that went out and did his own thing. And he had one kind of reigning message, which was just um, stick with it for two years. It's gonna, you're gonna question yourself. You're gonna think, should I go back? You're gonna probably interview other people to go back. And he said, just stick with it for two years. And if you work hard, you'll realize that two years is the right decision. Mm. Um. I know we talked before the show, you know, I think that's great advice for those of you that are thinking about going out on your own, what to do next, you know, two years is a good barometer, you know, um, it's really hard to accomplish much in a week, a month, six months, a year, maybe, but if you're going out on a new effort, hopefully you have enough savings or passive income to float, you know, we, I talked about hang time in some other episodes, the, the time in between capital events, but either have passive side hustle, hang time, some plan, and give yourself enough time to have like an actual look back reflection period. And I think Chris's mentor, that attorney is spot on. I, th I think two years is a good look back period. And then you can decide, do I pivot? Do I go, you're probably all in it two years, but do I hire and expand? You know, you know where, am I, where am I with it? I love it. Um, anything that, um, anything else you want to impart on the audience? Uh, any books you're reading? Anything that you think is interesting? Um, and otherwise, we'll, we'll bring it home. The one that I always, on Reddit, uh, Fatfire is a big oh. uh, kind of Reddit that I follow. Um, all incredibly smart, wealthy people. And it's basically a form for capital growth. And it's called, say it again? Fatfire. Fatfire. Because fat on a fire burns real fast or something? Or I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, all right. I'll go with it. Okay. It's on Reddit? On Reddit. All yeah. right. Want to check that all, out? All types of great wisdom from you know just everything. Yeah. Uh, everything, yes, Reddit, right? So you got a whole bunch of junk in there. Yeah. But use some great, great stuff. Excellent. That's a nice little nugget for us. All right. Um, where can people find you? I don't know if you're on social, a website, email, or phone number, but whatever you'd like the audience to know to be able to find you. Yeah. So LinkedIn, uh, Christopher Gooden, um, Coastland Group. You can find me. Uh, my phone number. Um, I'm sure that you can share afterwards. Mike. We'll put Chris's contact in the show notes with any specifics on like email and phone number. So. Perfect. Yeah, so either one and, um, you know, if, if anyone's out there and they're looking at land and they need someone to have a look at, uh, want so, a second set of eyes, want some thoughts on it, reach out. I'm happy to have a look at it, give you my thoughts. Uh, any, really anywhere in the southeast, uh, primarily do Jacksonville and Orlando, but you know, uh, happy to help in, in other markets as well. And um, you mentioned hang time. And that's one of the biggest things people don't realize in this industry. Uh, people think they can contract land and in two months they can get ready and sell it. This is a 10 to 18 month game. 
that your start of your project could take 10 months to finish, it could take 18 months to finish. So there's, there's a large hang time in there that you have to be prepared for. I bet when you were coming in in 2012 and 13 and there's lots where you can just start you know, framing right away, I bet back then you could turn a profit quite quickly, but it's a totally different game now. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, guys, if you're in, guys and gals, if you're enjoying this podcast, I invite you to rate, comment, review. Maybe one day we'll even get a sponsor. Who knows? Um, does help us grow, helps us stay in the game. I really want to spread this message. Um, we, of course, are Yield Coach. You're watching the show now. We're on Instagram, Facebook. We've got the YouTube channel. This podcast will also be on YouTube for those that want to see how handsome Chris is. It's worth a look. Um, actually, I just realized I look kind of like a cigar lounge manager the way I'm dressed today, but um, feel free to jump on YouTube and watch that. There will be more great shows to come. And as always, I want you to leave it all on the field and run to the light. Thank you. Thank you.